All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of My Weird Little Podcast. And uh, today we have the lovely Teresa and the lovely Roxana and me, Tia, who will be here sipping on a Corona and drinking water, um, hopefully in equal amounts. And because I will just be listening for today uh, and uh, you two are talking today. So today is the one with uh, espionage. Is that it? That's 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 right. The one with espionage. Yeah. Speaking. Okay. Speaking of espionage, if you are a fan of the show Community, uh, their their espionage episode with the paintball, the paintball episode. You can see me in the oh. background. Oh, really? I'm sure I've shown you guys. Well, maybe I haven't shown you guys, but you can see me in the background. Pretty cool. Anyways, I was excited. I like Community, but I did. I digress. Yeah, it was a funny show. It was a good show. I miss yeah. it. Anyways, who wants to go first? Um, I think mine takes place earlier. If uh, she's talking about Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, we can I go. Place during World War One. Okay, yeah, we can go chronologically. That's fine. If whatever. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Go okay. ahead. Take it away. So the Matahari. How many of you? Well, there's only two of you. So have you guys heard of the Matahari? Yeah. What do you think of when you hear that name? Exotic, foreign, mysterious. Um, I think of Vanessa Hudgens being Matahari in Drunk History. Oh, yeah. That too. <laughs> <laughs> that too, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, well, she was Dutch. <laughs> right. Exotic. Very. Exotic. Uh, her birth name was Margarita Gertrude Zella. So, yeah, super exotic. I think they looked at her genealogy. They did not find anything close to being, uh, you know, Asian or anything other than white Dutch. So, they ah, okay. happened to have very dark features uh, for a Dutch person. And she was very beautiful. That is something that is, that is true. And you can even take pictures of her online she's gorgeous um and yeah she was an exotic dancer but she actually would prefer to take the bottoms off and not the top because she felt she was small breasted so i guess it's like the opposite of a topless bar mm. anyway before we get to that part uh she was born in the netherlands in 1876 on august 8th uh that makes her what a leo yeah? Yes, August 8th. Yep. Okay. August 10th here. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. You? They love the spotlight. They love attention. Um, that's kind of the theme of her life. She loved being the center of attention. And she was the eldest child. Her parents were pretty well to do. Her father, I think, was a hat maker. He's really good at making hats. And he spoiled her. <laughs> Just, just lavished attention, 
you know, make sure she was wearing the, the finest cloth. So she kind of got used to a standard of life uh, at a very young age. But then the business didn't do too well, and her father went bankrupt. Then her parents got divorced, and then he just pretty much up and left the family and married another woman, kind of abandoning uh, Marguerite at this time, or Margarita, I should say. And that kind of hurt her a bit, and they were saying that maybe this is what uh, made her want to have the attention of these men and be lavished on them later in her lifetime. So her mom dies as well. That's another horrible thing. I'm laughing because it's just, it's so super horrible. Your father up and leaves, and then your mom dies. And she goes to live with her godfather after her mother has passed away. And she's going to this school, but when she's about 15 or 16 years old, she apparently has an affair with one of the teachers who's like 60 years old. Whoa. So you're wondering how much was it her doing the affair and him being a creepy old pedophile? Yeah. Or, you know, it's always the women's fault. So she gets removed from the school. And then when she's about 18 years old, she uh, reading the, a Dutch newspaper and she sees in like the the Lonely Hearts section that this Dutch um, captain is looking for a wife. He kind of wants somebody nice and wonderful to, to settle down with. Of course, I think that's a red flag of why are you posting in the paper that you need a wife? What's wrong with you? And oh boy, will we find out. So she marries him when she's about 18. He's in the Dutch colonial army. He is Captain Rudolph McLeod. And they get married in 1895. So not all terrible. I mean, she moves to the Dutch East Indies, and when she's there, she learns multiple languages. Uh, she is fascinated with the culture that she's surrounded by, the, the East Indian culture, and really is studying it, and she actually takes up dance lessons as well. Uh, and so the, the name that she later takes as her artist name, Madahari, is Melee for Eye of the Day, or translate to basically the sun. So that's kind of like the origins of that. Uh, she does end up having two kids, Norman John McLeod and Louise Jimmy Jan. Oh, crap. Okay. <laughs> Jean McLeod. Uh, what's really sad is that little Norman dies when he's just a, a, wee, a wee child. And I guess for a while there was some conspiracy that he was slowly poisoned by one of the servants. But now theories are saying that he was actually being treated for congenital syphilis. And that was, uh, they used mercury to do that. And it's real easy to accidentally overdose on mercury. So they think that that was the real reason for his death. And you're going, wait, how did the wee little lad get syphilis? Well, I am glad you asked. So Rudolph uh, was, was kind of a jerk. 
he was known to be an alcoholic. He was known to be abusive. Apparently, he was also sleeping around. And he gave uh, Matahari basically a syphilis. But she did not know for a very long time. In fact, she did not find out until after the birth of her second child. And she was not very happy about this kind of information, right? Because Dunn gave the whole family syphilis. and then I don't think anyone's ever happy to find out they have syphilis. <laughs> no. That now no. their children have syphilis. And it's uh, meaning that it's like passed down genetically. Uh, so basically, uh, wow. the only treatment was because they, they had syphilis while she was pregnant with them. Oh, so right. it's called congenial syphilis, and it can also be dormant. So it, in a way, it kind of ended up killing both kids. So it killed the first one, little Norman, when he was a wee lad, and that's they really because he got it bad, and he was really suffering the symptoms. And so they're treating him with the only thing they knew at the time, which was mercury. And they accidentally, you know, overdosed on mercury, not too hard to do, had killed Mormon. And then Louise ends up dying at 20 years old. And they believe it was from complications from the syphilis. So, you know, that's kind of sad. Um, but the, the marriage is not doing that great. Uh, he's, like I said before, just really abusive. Uh, not really treating anybody very well. They move back to the Netherlands and she went ahead and they got separated in 1902 and she was supposed to get custody of her daughter which she did for a bit but Rudolph wasn't paying any child support so she's not making really any money at this point in time and so when her daughter was visiting Rudolph he just decides, you know what, I am going to keep her, and uh, Mahari can't really do anything about it at this time. And she couldn't. She didn't have the funds. She didn't have the money to be able to fight him. So she kind of just ended up losing her daughter to him. Uh, and she decides, well, I have nothing to lose. So she moves to Paris, and their divorce pretty much became official in 1906. So by that time, she's in, she's in Paris. And she's working as a circus horse rider, you know, like you do when you move to a new city, right? Mm -hmm. Circus horse yep. rider. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also was posing as a model. So that kind of goes back to that thing of her being the center of attention. Oh, and something I forgot to mention, like, she was always known to be beautiful. That even when she was in school, one of her classmates commented that she was like an orchid amongst dandelions or something like that or daffodils you know just some plain flower that that she had always been revered for her beauty so she was working off of that in Paris and then in 1904 that's when she uh, became an exotic dancer and she was actually looking for different names and then settled on Matahari it was the one that worked well uh, she gained a lot of popularity very quickly and she was totally appropriating a different culture and benefiting off of it. Like her backstory was that she was a, a Jeremy's princess of Hindu birth and that she had been studying the sacred Indian dance since childhood. When in reality, she had taken a few dance lessons and gotten into it when she was there with her husband. 
she was only there for a few years. Uh, she was obviously not of Indian descent. She was, you know, pure Dutch. But she had, again, that darker coloring to her. And she was, even though she wasn't a trained dancer, she was just very good at it. She was very graceful, very seductive. She really knew how to move her body. She was very proud of her body. She didn't mind, like, showing it off, except for her boobies. And so <laughs> this made her very, very popular. And she, you know, would have these gorgeous, elaborate, although skimpy costumes. Uh, and she was very good at getting male attention. And so she was also becoming a really good courtesan. And she... Uh, was kind of known to have multiple lovers and there was really no jealousy because all the uh, different lovers all kind of knew about each other and they were, uh, you know, uh, wealth and they would pay for her stuff. And so again, she was using her looks and her, you know, ability to charm the men to live a nice, luxurious life that she had gotten used to as a kid and then once again when she got married to Rudolph and so now she's got all these beautiful costumes and jewels and furs and all these men lavishing attention on her and everything she's doing great traveling up uh, performing all over the place uh, but as uh, she starts to get into you know the early 1910s and around 1913 her dancing career starting to wane off there's the brewing of World War One, and she wasn't really concerning herself with that. With that, you know, that wasn't really her problem as long as she was able to continue to dance around. And you know, people weren't too happy with her her lifestyle. Here she was in the early 1900s, a you know single woman, not single, not like not married, but she's kind of living her best life and. That was still kind of, it is still looked down on. She was like the Cardi B of her time. Like, she didn't give a shit. She's going to do what she wants to do. That means dancing around and getting a whole bunch of money. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, she kind of stops dancing in 1915. And that's fine because, again, she's a successful courtesan. She still has all this money coming in, all these wonderful affairs. She's traveling all over the places. Uh, and because she is Dutch, and the Netherlands are neutral, she's pretty much able to travel from place to place, no problem. But problems start to arise as the, the war takes off. <laughs> so there was this one time where she is traveling from Berlin to France, and she gets detained by the German army, who then confiscates all of her jewels and all of her furs. And this makes her very unhappy. That's a lot of money that they have pretty much decided they're, they're going to go ahead and keep for themselves, for their, their cause. And uh, the Germans know that because she is Dutch and able to get from place to place, she's already well-known and very well-connected, they ask her if she wants to go ahead and spy for them. And they're going to give her 20,000 francs to do this. And she pretty much, like, blows them off, like, eh, I don't know, think about it. She takes the money and then really doesn't give them any, any really information. She doesn't really do the job because in her mind she feels like, I was owed that money from what you confiscated from me. So 
technically, yeah, the German army paid her to spy, but she really took the money and ran. Now she's in France, and she ends up falling in love uh, with this captain. His name is Vadim Moslov, and he's actually Russian, but he's fighting for France. Well, he gets shot down, and he ends up losing vision in his left eye, and she's wanting to go visit him. But the French uh, military is not going to let her visit him unless she is willing to spy for them. Again, you know, she has all these connections. She can get close to all of these very well-connected uh, military people and politicians and people that just have a lot of influence throughout Europe. And so she agrees to go ahead and try to get information from the crown prince Wilhelm because she had danced for him before, so she had access to him. Well, the kind of information they wanted her to get he didn't really have because they wanted stuff like, you know, what kind of planes are they going to be using and where are the airstrikes and all this stuff. And the Crown Prince at that time had really nothing to do with everything that the, the French military was kind of looking for. So, again, she kind of comes back and doesn't have that information that they're wanting. But she's like, whatever, I did the job. I flirted with them. We, we did all this stuff. Um, She's kind of like realizing that these governments are willing to pay her money for, I guess, information. And so she goes back to Germany and uh, contacts, uh, well, and, and also because I think there's other stuff that was happening, jealousy and ego with these various men. So when she's in France, her contact is George Ledeau. Uh, and then in Germany, her contact was, let me, sorry, let me go ahead and pull that up. Bah, 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 bah. Major Kale. So in Germany, her contact was Major Kale. So now she's trying to set up a meeting with Major Kale saying, hey, I can give you some French information and all that stuff because they're also kind of having a spy for them. But basically all the information she had was just, Gossip, like which political person was talking who, and it wasn't really any information. So basically, uh, the Germans kind of get fed up with her. Uh, the French are also kind of fed up with her. They set her up to be the scapegoat, pretty much. So they're accusing, the French are now accusing Kanahari um, of being a German spy, and then Germans aren't really denying it because they're not, they don't care. They, if the French want to get rid of her, fine, they get rid of her own problem, whatever. So the Germans send this transmission about how great this spy is uh, under code name H21, and they describe her as being closely to Manahari's description. And they're also doing it with a the code. They know the French have crapped. So they know that the French are going to be able to interpret and intercept this message, which is exactly what they do. And so then that is kind of what they're using as proof that she was really this double spy and that she was spying for both the French and the German. And in reality, she just kind of gotten a little bit in over her head playing these various men against each other. And 
then they realize they kind of got fed up and threw her under the bus. So she ends up going to trial in 1916. Um, and they pretty much are saying that because of her, she caused the death of 50,000 soldiers. And again, it's not really her fault, but they just needed to pin this failure on someone. Uh, so they pretty much did it. There was no evidence against her. And there was also, you know, discrimination against her for being a, a harlot, uh, you know, a loose woman. And they even said that they quoted a harlot, yes, but a, a traitorous never. Now that's what the defense was saying. But, you know, people didn't like the independent women at the time. So she gets convicted and basically ends up getting executed. And even when she gets executed, she's still holding her head up high, like literally. And they were saying that the way that she died is not how you see it in the movies. So it was by firing squad. For you youngins, if you don't know what that is, that's basically where they stood in front of a group of soldiers, and this time it was 12 soldiers, each of them have a gun, and they're basically shooting you until you die. And usually you are given a blindfold if you would like it. Back in the day, they would have the cartoons where, you know, the cartoon character would get be uh, killed by a firing squad, and they would always give them, like, a blindfold and a cigarette or something like that. God, well, cartoons are so dark. <laughs> I mean, like, how are they, how are we watching this as children? And it was yeah. about to be funny, kids, right? Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so they, they did, they offered her a blindfold, but allegedly she refused the blindfold. And then they, they, it was the 12 soldiers, they, they fired at her, and she slowly collapsed to her knees, keeping her head up high the entire time. They said that the expression on her face never changed. And then she might just completely collapse to the ground. Because no family members claimed her, because you know her daughter and her son are dead, and her whole family is dead except for her crappy husband. Her body went to science, and for the longest time, I guess her skull was supposed to be in this museum, but apparently was discovered missing in the early 2000s and they actually believe it might have even been missing since as early as the 1960s or 50s so this poor woman mm -hmm. um so that was kind of her story uh, of course in um popular culture she's depicted as his femme fatale who is you know a deep double agent and just seducing and killing men all over the place in reality more like she, was, she wasn't a very popular exotic dancer. Uh, people would attribute, attribute it today being like if I mentioned like Cardi B or Lady Gaga or like Kim Kardashian had been accused of being a spy and then killed for it. Um, saying she was really not the best candidate for being a spy because she was so high profile. Everybody knew her. She loved being the center of attention. Like, this is not the kind of person that's going to easily be able to speak from one place to another. I mean, she's getting stopped mm -hmm. at borders so that the German, that soldiers can take her shit. So the fact that 
she was innocent um, is kind of the theory that's been going around today. I think even the French opened up uh, information that had been sealed for the longest time confirming the fact that she really was not the, the, the criminal spy that they had made her out to be, and that there was really no evidence that she had anything to do with the death of those 50,000 men. But, um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the, the true story of, or the, the truer story of Matahari. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, super cool. They depicted her in the new Kingsman movie, and it was obviously not accurately at all. <laughs> they made her out to be like, yeah, definitely a spy working for this like evil guy. I don't know if I even finished that movie. <laughs> the fighting was good. Anyways. Oh, yeah. It had it, yeah. Anyways, thank you for sharing that with yeah. us. That's super sad. That, you know, women can't just do what they want and be praised for how beautiful we are all the time. Yeah, I, like, just give us money. For how beautiful we are. And she was only 41, too. When oh, she wow. So she's very young. So. Yeah. yeah. What she wanted to do was just, you know, be adored by men. And she, she would be like, I made them happy. I did my job. They made me happy by paying me. <laughs> don't we all though I just want to be adored and have people throw money like at me and not have, not have too, too much for it sure yeah. <laughs> well I have a story to share with you about Audrey Hepburn also a spy I couldn't believe it actually yeah um, and act, and now that I know that Matahari, uh, was also Dutch, Audrey wasn't exactly Dutch because she wasn't born, uh, in the Netherlands, but, um, she lived in the Netherlands for a good chunk of her early life. So they, Matahari and Audrey both have that in common as well as the spy part. Um, so... Yeah, I really did a double take when I found out that Audrey Hepburn was, you know, is known, I guess, as a spy. <laughs> to me, you know, she's always been one of my favorites as far as Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's what I always think of her first. And, and you know, she's super iconic in that role, of course. And uh, it said that the dress that she wears at the beginning of it, the the Givenchy dress, is one of the most iconic ones in the world. So that is how, of course, I always think of Audrey Hepburn first. But yeah, she has quite the backstory with her regard to her early life. And I don't know, it's just kind of blew my mind a bit to find out all this information about her. Um, so I will just give you a little brief background on how she grew up because it's very relevant to, um, you know, kind of why she became a spy during during that time in her life. 
So her given name is Audrey Kathleen Rustin. And her father um, also used Hepburn. Uh, so that's where she got the Hepburn from. But um, Rustin was his his last name. Um, and she lived from May 4th, 1929 to January 20th, 1993. She was 63 years old at the time she died. Pretty young. Um, but she had a very uh, rare cancer in her appendix, actually, of all things. So, yeah, that's what actually, yeah, so that actually ended ended her life, unfortunately, at such a young age. But um, she was born in, and I'm going to pronounce some of these things wrong, I think, but sorry for that. <laughs> she was born in Excels, Brussels, in Belgium. And uh, her dad's name was Joseph Victor Anthony Rustin. And her mom's name was Baroness Ella Van Heemstra. So she was a Dutch noble, noblewoman, but um, it was really more of just a title at that point because the family didn't have like loads of money or anything like that. They definitely weren't wealthy. They had property, they had, you know, stuff like that, but um, you know, it wasn't kind of the wealth that you might think that somebody who has the title Baroness would have. Mm -hmm. uh, but she spent, um, her childhood was mostly spent in three places, in Belgium, England, and the Netherlands. So getting into kind of a little bit of the background of why, um, she fought so strongly, I think, especially um, in a way that I'll, I'll get into later. But uh, her parents, unfortunately, were in support of fascism. So oh. this was, oh. yes, I know, boo, <laughs> it's terrible. So um, her father actually left her family when Audrey was just six years old. And he then moved to London and he became even more deeply involved in fascist activity. And he didn't, he didn't visit her while uh, she was, you know, living away from him. And Audrey said that her father leaving her was, quote, the most traumatic event of my life. So I think, you know, that really left a huge scar on her and, um, you know, something that she wasn't going to be able to get over very easily. So I feel like that tragedy that happened there, even though, you know, her father didn't, didn't die or anything like that. He, you know, left the family and, um, they would get divorced. Her parents would get divorced not long after that. So, um, but, you know, it was one of those things that kind of, set that up in her life. Um, and it just became a very deep wound for her. So in 1937, Audrey attended a boarding school in Kent, England. So she lived there for, for, you know, like a year, no, 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 more than a year. I'm sorry. 
but she lived there and, um, you know, she had kind of a hard time being there on her own, um, but she was educated very well. And then in 1938 was when her parents went through the divorce. And then in 1939, after Britain declared war on Germany, Audrey's mother moved her back to Arnhem in the Netherlands. And that's where her family's estate was. And she attended the Arnhem Conservatory from 1939 to 1945. And at this time, she became very, very interested in dancing and specifically in ballet. And she wanted to, that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to dance and she became a very excellent uh, ballet dancer by all accounts. She was known as the star student in her class. Um, and there's, you know, if you do just a Google search, I'm sure you could find the image of her. I thought it was um, really cool. It was not one I had seen before, but she's, you know, dressed as a ballerina and she's standing in front of the bar and doing a pose. And it's just really gives you a different take, you know, on on her. So I thought that was cool. So the ballet dancing too will become significant in a moment here. Um, but in back to the timeline of events, in 1940, the Germans invaded the Netherlands and Audrey and her family were occupied for five years under the German, under the Nazis, basically. Um, so at that time, she used the name Edda van Heemstra because her name Audrey was too English sounding. And that was considered dangerous at the time since, you know, the Germans were German and, and the Britons were against each other. Um, and then the big kind of defining event, I, I would say, happened in 1942. That's when her uncle, Otto von Limburg Sturm, was executed. And that was in retaliation for an act of sabotage by the resistance movement. And it turns out that her uncle was not actually involved in that activity that got him executed, but he was targeted due to the fact that his family was so prominent in the Dutch society. Um, so yeah, that was a horrible thing that happened. And at the time, uh, Audrey was only 13 years old. Uh, and it wouldn't stop with her uncle. Actually, her whole family was, you know, targeted in a way, I guess you could say her half brother, Ian, uh, and she had two half brothers was because, uh, her mother had a previous marriage. Actually, both her parents were married um, to someone else before they married each other, but the mother actually had children. So her half-brother Ian was deported to work in a German labor camp in Berlin. And her other half-brother Alex went into hiding to try and escape that fate. And so he actually did escape that, but her other brother did not. 
And there's a couple different quotes that I wanted to share because I just felt like they described, you know, what what she witnessed firsthand. And it's just really chilling. Um, so this was a quote from her on the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. We saw young men put against the wall and shot. And they'd close the street and then open it. And you could pass by again. Don't discount anything awful you hear or read about the Nazis. It's worse than you could ever imagine. So, yeah, that's just kind of, I just whew, get chills. Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, think, I mean, the of course, the horror, I mean, a- any way you slice it, it's horrible to talk about this period of time for anyone involved or anyone living at the time. Um, and of course, mm, 10 million times worse for the people who actually died or were tortured or, you know, starved, etc. But Audrey, as a witness, getting to see this firsthand and then being able to talk about it so clearly, I think is just another kind of tribute to her as the type of strong person that that she obviously was. Um, So back to 1942, uh, after her uncle's death, Audrey left Arnhem to live with her grandfather, Baron, uh, sorry, I'm going to mess it up, Arnaud, Baron Arnaud van Kiemstra in the nearby town of Velp. And at this time was the time when Audrey went into full spy mode. <laughs> um, she, she basically, you know, whether she, I mean, you couldn't admit it, of course, um, but, you know, I don't know how she really felt about the things going on at the time, um, but she was willing to basically become a member of the resistance in her own way. Um, At the time, she performed in silent dance performances to raise money for the Dutch resistance effort. And when I say silent, I mean silent. Uh, Like you could go, these were only allowed at nighttime, and they were called Zwarte Avoden, or Black Evenings, And that's because they actually blacked out the windows as well so that no one could see what was going on inside. But Audrey would would dance and the audience had to be completely silent while they were watching. Even, you know, upon her finishing, there were no there was no clapping happening. So she said that it was just such an interesting time in her life because she gave she said, I gave probably some of the best performances that I ever gave. And, you know, not a, not a single sound was made. So, yeah, that's <laughs> pretty amazing, you know. And what a rebellious act, especially using the arts, using dance to do that. So I think that's definitely pretty cool. Um, and then she also did other things. Um, and this was 
under, um, she kind of, she was more or less the assistant to a man named Dr. Hendrik Wissert Hooft. I think I messed that up really badly, but sorry. (laughs) Um, But he was the resistance leader and he was actually a doctor at the hospital where she volunteered. And the hospital was the center of the resistance activities in Belp. Um, So the doctor, I guess he was said to be very good looking as well. I guess that didn't hurt her wanting to help him. Uh, She was, she was a young teenager at the time. Um, But she delivered the underground newspaper, uh, the orange, orange crunt. She took messages and food to downed allied flyers hiding in the woodlands north of Belt. And her family even hid a paratrooper and they were known as the Red Devils. They hid the paratrooper in their home during what was known as the Battle of Arnhem uh, in their town. So they took it upon them. It was just a temporary time that they were holding him or that they were hiding him there for. Um, But it was super rebellious act at the time because, you know, if the Germans found out that you were hiding someone in their home, they were going to come for the entire family. So luckily it never came to that, but they actually did that more than once. They did it a couple of times um, from what I understand. Um, But that those were just some of the things that she did. And with the um, delivering the underground newspaper, the paper was in such short supply that uh, the, the length of the paper that they actually used was uh, like a, a paper napkin and half of that. So that was all that they had to write the messages on. So Audrey said that she remembered um, she would roll them up and put them in her, she said, heavy woolen socks. And with her wooden shoes, she would get on her bike and, you know, ride through town, excuse me, delivering the messages wherever they needed to go. And another reason that the doctor wanted her to be his assistant in the first place, other than the fact that, you know, she was a very nice young lady and obviously one with a set of real balls, you know, (laughs) but he, he, um, he knew, he said he knew that the Germans would not care one fig about uh, children. You know, they weren't, they weren't looking to kids that they were going to be, you know, kind of that they, that anything, you know, they just didn't think that children would be capable of, of doing anything like that. So they, they didn't think anything of it. And that's how she got away with it. She did get into some scrapes a couple of times, um, but she managed to get out of them every time. Luckily, Um, they were trying to, at one point, uh, force her to go with a bunch of other girls to work in the kitchens in Germany. So I guess as maid slaves. Um, 
but she managed to get away from that. And, um, you know, she already saw her one brother be captured. So um, after, after the thing with the kitchen, she kind of went into hiding at that point because she knew that it really wasn't safe to be out on the streets anymore. Um, but those were just some of the things that she did. Um, and this is another quote from her talking about um, her witnessing the transportation of Dutch Jews to concentration camps, which again, it's just so harrowing. Um, this is her quote. More than once, I was at the station seeing trainloads of Jews being transported, seeing all these faces over the top of the wagon. I remember very sharply one little boy standing with his parents on the platform, very pale, very blonde, wearing a coat that was much too big for him. And he stepped out and he stepped on the train. I was a child observing a child. And that was a quote that she gave to a reporter once about one of her experiences. And again, to me, I'm just like, oh my God, I just can't imagine. And especially, like she said, I was a child observing a child. It's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's just chilling. So um, in... In 1944, in the winter, uh, what happened was known as the Dutch famine because the Germans had blocked the supply routes for food and fuel. So Audrey Hepburn and her family uh, made flour out of tulip bulbs to bake cakes and breads, um, oh, sorry, and biscuits because it was most starch heavy, but the truth is that there was just no food. It said that the doctor in the town or one of the doctors in the town actually, um, you know, made up recipes for using tulip bulbs because there was just nothing left. She talked about, yeah, honestly. And they, they, they went through this for a good year at least. Um, Audrey said there were days when she didn't eat for like three days at a time was typical for her. Um, and, you know, they just tried everything they could to just survive. So, um, of course, she developed acute anemia from this and respiratory problems and ed edema due to the malnutrition. And during this time, too, um, because of all the fighting and the bombs and everything else, her family home in Arnhem was very badly damaged. Um, so there was that as well. They were living in the basement at that point uh, during that time. So it was just, you know, extremely hard, stressful, frightening time. Um, but... The good news is that when the war ended um, in 1945, Audrey um, would move with her mother and then they, she 
was trying to pursue dancing more actively at this point. Um, but her malnourished body, unfortunately, was not going to be well enough to have her be, you know, kind of have that career as a prima ballerina. Uh, I also read that one report said that she was a little too tall. I guess she was 5'7", and they wanted her to be a little shorter. So she didn't entirely abandon dancing, but that is when she uh, she used dancing to land her in uh, a few shows And then she would kind of use that to translate into breaking into the business, into Hollywood, into the Audrey Hepburn that we think of most often as this, you know, glamorous lady on screen. And so not long after that, she started uh, her film career with Roman Holiday. And then things just exploded from there. Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, of course, is my favorite. Um, But after that, she didn't really do a whole lot. Um, She didn't make a whole lot of movies after that, I should say. Um, But she kind of switched roles um, in around the, I think it was around the 80s. Well, that was kind of the peak of her humanitarian career, I guess you could say. Um, That was when she started working with UNICEF. And now, knowing her backstory with all this and everything that she went through, I can see entirely clearly why she wanted to do that. Because she was just so affected by that experience. And it just made her that much more empathetic and that much more of a true badass. That's how her son described her. (laughs) One of her sons um, in this book that actually started the, the whole spy thing off, because I think up until 2019 um, when this book was written um, and the book I'm talking about is, is called Dutch girl, Audrey Hepburn and world war two. It was written by Robert Matson. So until that book was written, there wasn't too much that was known about um, Audrey's real experience during this time. Uh, she w- she wouldn't, you know, exactly, she would talk about her experience to the media in various ways, but she would not really get into a whole lot of detail. So Robert Matson, when he put the book together, he spoke with a lot of close friends and family, anyone who is still surviving anyway, and even people in the town where she grew up. So he kind of put together a lot of, a lot of that background, but it just, um, yeah, it, it still, it really blows my mind just thinking about it right now, because I mean, it makes perfect sense now thinking about it all together, but yeah, she was really, um, strong person. So, you know, it's very sad that her life had to end so early with such a rare, rare cancer. But it's kind of interesting that the author of the book, Robert Matson, suggests that um, perhaps her, her, uh, um, sorry, I keep saying it wrong, her appendix 
perhaps the cancer of her appendix. There's a more formal name for it, which I, I'm not going to try to say. <laughs> but he thinks that that cancer may have had something to do with all the that malnourishment too. I mean, it's a possibility. It's years and years later, but that they found, like when they found the cancer on the appendix, um, you know, they found like a coating, they said, kind of over the organ itself. So it was, you know, just not a good situation. But, and that could have been building up for years. So I think that that was his reasoning. That was his idea. But nonetheless, she, you know, I, I'm just even more inspired by her now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, could, you could maybe argue a little bit about her acting here and there. I mean, it's kind of funny because when I was looking over all this information, I read that, um, so she was, rec- Audrey Hepburn was recognized um, as one of the top iconic British actresses. Um, and they were, you know, calling her British, I guess, because she does have some British ancestry and background. But anyway, uh, Emma Thompson weighed in and she said, well, she can't really sing. She can't sing and she can't really act. So that was a big, you know, when I read that, I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, But, you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, yes. It's true. Audrey Hepburn could not sing. That's why when she was Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady, they had someone else uh, do her do her singing voice. But it still doesn't take away from, you know, the charm and elegance. I think that she, anytime you look at her, you just, she just has this presence, you know? So I don't know. I mean, the acting, hmm, I don't really want to weigh in on that, but. Like I said, I I do love her in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And now knowing that, um, you know, she was just, as her son said, such a badass growing up that she was involved in this. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. So it definitely opened my eyes up and and kind of, you know, gave gave more. just gave more background and to a person that I already admired. So yeah, very cool. So Audrey Hepburn was a spy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) I relate so much to her in breakfast at Tiffany's Mm -hmm. so much to just being a glamorous mess you know, yeah, like not having my life together, <laughs> but like loving my pet cat and being, you know, yes, like I don't know, just being weird. Yeah, I mean, definitely. what is what is the trope called? The like manic pixie dream oh, girl. Yeah. It's kind of like that, but like a little more realistic, but also not realistic at all. But, you know, just that scene where she has the party at her apartment and like she didn't know half the people in her house. Oh, yeah. I totally can relate to that. 
you know, <laughs> and then just like having this like glamorous clothes, but like you can't even pay your rent. Right. Like, that's, I definitely can relate or maybe want to relate to that. That's how yeah. I view myself. But really, I'm like chips and pajama pants, but <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I do, I do love that movie so much. I know. I really, relate, really relate to right? that feeling, you know? Yes. It's such a good movie. It's just. Mm-hmm. I love it. Like, I mean, of course, there are obvious things about it nowadays that are very problematic. Yes. Um, Like a lot of stereotypes that we should not be supporting in any way um, anymore. But the overall film, you know, is really cool. I really love it. And, you know, it's funny, too, that I found um, a quote from Audrey saying that, uh, that she loved playing that role, that that was, um, what did she say? She has such a way of speaking. She said it was the jazziest role that she'd ever played. Uh-huh. And cool. she, yeah, and she said that um, she couldn't believe that she played it because she's such an introvert and Holly Golightly is such an extro- extrovert. So she said that that was something she would have never imagined doing. So that too struck me because I mean, obviously, yeah, we know she's acting, but you know, she just makes it seem so effortless. Like she was born for that role, you know? And then I heard that Truman Capote who, you know, wrote the book for breakfast at Tiffany's, Mm -hmm. he had wanted uh, like Marilyn Monroe to play that role. But he said that Audrey did a great job anyway. So even though that wasn't his choice and he said they sanitized the movie too much from what his book was, but I just thought that was funny. And I'm trying to imagine Marilyn Monroe as Holly Golightly and I could see it, but it would be an entirely different movie, of course. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the universe out there where it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. Well, awesome stories. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. I was thoroughly entertained. Yay. My, my beer is empty. My water is empty, too. I think it was a success. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, yeah, till next time. Um, so, you can listen to us. Please like and sc- subscribe. Listen to us. Share this podcast with other people. Check out our sister podcast, Hollywood's Haunted. The podcast, we talk about uh, other Hollywood stars, such as Audrey Hepburn and others. <laughs> um, we have a few new episodes coming out there on uh, that podcast. I have a TikTok for this podcast and also a Instagram and uh, Facebook as well. Uh, so follow us <laughs> and uh, stay spooky, everybody. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>